At this point in Luke's gospel account, Jesus has become fairly well known in Galilee, in the northern region of Israel, and so more people want to hear his message, and some people want to oppose his message. And so it's become necessary at this point, according to plan, for him to train other leaders who can carry that message. And to prepare them for that, they will have to follow him. Likewise, for us to be disciples of Jesus, we will have to follow those who follow him. And if we're to do that, there are some questions that we have to answer first. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand. Help us to recognize and see what you are doing what your son indeed was doing on this particular day when he named these twelve to be apostles. Lord, help us to recognize the building of your church, the construction of your redemptive plan in all of history as you continue even now on this day in this place, this work which gives us life by faith in Jesus. Help us to believe, Lord, that we might see your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I can't resist. I have to tell you this story. In 1973, a team of astronomers met with a French test pilot whose name was André Turcotte. And they proposed a project to this young test pilot. Turcotte was the the pilot of the, at that time, still experimental Concorde supersonic jet. And this team of astronomers came to him with a proposal. They, they wanted his help to conduct a certain experiment that they were very, very eager to conduct. And time was of the essence because a solar eclipse was coming to North Africa. It was on its way to, to the Sahara Desert. And the astronomers and the test pilot, along with his administrators, they worked out a plan and they came to an agreement. And they said, yes, okay. We can do this. And so on June 30 of that year, this, I'm sure, very eager test pilot, along with his payload of scientists in the back of this supersonic jet, took off and headed south. And at a speed of 1,250 miles per hour, they intercepted the shadow of the moon, and they followed the shadow of the moon at supersonic speeds across the Sahara Desert for 74 minutes in the total darkness of the shadow of the moon of a solar eclipse. I don't think that it's ever been done before since. 
they must surely hold the Guinness Book of World Records for someone standing in the totality zone of a solar eclipse. And anyone who pays attention to celestial events would love to have been on that plane. Tomorrow, of course, all North Americans will dust off their favorite Cat Stevens album, and they'll sing Moon Shadow as they see this greatest of natural events in modern American history unfolding in the sky above. And, and I hope that you have the right glasses to see it. My family, we, we have the right glasses. I hope that you've got some so that you don't miss this thing when it happens. Some are predicting that millions of people, even right now today, that millions of people across the, the country from Oregon to South Carolina are going to migrate their way up into the, the strip of totality that stretches across the land from coast to coast. Millions of people headed that way. It's an astonishing, remarkable event. It will be an amazing event to see wherever you are, even here in, in Dallas. But along with this celestial display, this eclipse demonstrates a gospel truth that Luke has in mind, I think, even right here in, in Luke. We, we sang something of it moments ago in the hymn that we sang together. Let all the moons and all the stars and all the universe sing praises to the, the living God who rules them by his word. That happens every day of your life. You just aren't aware of it. Tomorrow, more people will be aware of it. Unfortunately, I would imagine that most of them will pay no attention to the fact that it's the living God who rules them by his word who's caused this thing to happen. But Luke wants us to recognize something bigger. He wants us to recognize that when something truly big comes along, bigger than any one person and bigger than any collection of persons could possibly build together, when something truly big comes along, people follow. People pay attention and they, they follow. Luke is writing to Theophilus, you know, his, his friend, his benefactor, who perhaps is paying for Luke's travels and his historical research. And Theophilus is presumably a wealthy person. He's presumably probably an, an influential person in his circles of first century social life. And, and Luke is introducing to Theophilus Jesus. And He's showing Theophilus, as we work our way through this account, that, that Jesus' following is increasing. As we work our way into chapter 5, as we did some weeks ago, you recognize there how Jesus called the first of his disciples to himself beside the lake on a, on a, a fishing day. Peter and Andrew, his brother and James and John, the four fishing partners, Jesus called these very particularly at that moment to follow him And then a little bit later, we read there in Luke's account of chapter 5 how Jesus walked past the tax booth where, where Matthew was working. And he called him, and, and Matthew left his tax booth and followed Jesus. And as Jesus continues on, as Luke accounts for it, teaching people and healing the sick and challenging the religious authorities, the crowds begin to grow, and the momentum is building because something big has come. As Luke leads us to this little text, it's something of an administrative detail, isn't it? A listing of names here. Luke has led us to this particular text. Jesus went out to a mountain to pray overnight, and he came back, and the next day he designated the twelve apostles, the ones who would follow him 
most closely over these next years. And the trajectory of the story begins to insist on something for us. And it's this. We must follow these followers if we're to follow Jesus. But why? Why should you follow them? Why should you follow these particular followers? They're just ordinary people, aren't they? I mean, many want to assume in retrospect as we look back on history and see the scope of the church as it is now, we want to assume that these must have been remarkably amazing and astonishing men set apart just by their natural gifts and abilities and the power of their personality. We assume, maybe too easily, that these men were great in and of themselves. But the account tells us that's not the case. I mean, just like any good athletic coach before a game where their team is the underdog facing a greater and stronger team, a coach is going to say these words inevitably. Listen, they're just people like us. They pull on their shorts and they lace up their high tops just like we do. They're just ordinary folks. And that's the case here. These are just 12 ordinary men. Why should you follow them? Because Jesus named them apostles. Apostle is one who is sent. It's a sent one. One who's sent by a greater authority to represent that authority in some other arena. And Jesus named these apostles. Now, the the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 gives us a little bit of hint of this significance when that writer refers to Jesus as the apostle. The one who was sent by God to represent God before us. And Jesus himself would say to these 12, he said, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. You can see the, the line of authority there. These 12 had some significant office to carry. These apostles were not just assistants to Jesus. They were ambassadors of God. That's what Jesus had in mind. And if, if that were not reason enough that we should follow them, then the fact that there are 12 of them should make the point pretty clear to us. I mean, the gospel writers show Jesus retracing the steps of Israel from the Old Testament. And that's in, a, in part why we, every week, read a scripture from the opposite testament so that you can see the connection between the two. This morning you heard from Exodus Chapter 40, the very end of of that Old Testament book. The Gospel writers show Jesus retracing the steps of, of Israel, as it were. As a child, Jesus faced exile in Egypt. Not because of a murderous famine as Israel had faced, but because of a murderous king. And as a man, as a grown man, Jesus entered into the Jordan River, not in order to cross into the Promised Land, as Israel had done, but in order to cross into the new covenant of baptism. And Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, not years. And Jesus even spoke God's word, much like Moses had done coming down from the mountain, as you heard earlier this morning, coming down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments of God for His people. Jesus spoke the words of God on a mount, the Sermon on the Mount, speaking to the people of Galilee and expounding upon those Ten Commandments, bringing the Word of God to God's people. He performed signs and wonders, and He confronted worldly powers, all things that Israel had done. 
And now, here he is, gathering together 12. Not tribes, but apostles. In fact, the the number 12 is so significant here that once Judas, the traitor, was gone, in Acts chapter 1, the other 11 sought after God's replacement for that apostleship, for, for the spot, the number 12 spot in the lineup. They, they sought after God's replacement for that. In fact, they even cited Psalm 109, which is an interesting psalm to look up sometime and read. It's actually somewhat of a sentencing of the one who would betray the Son of God. And in that sentencing, the psalmist declares another should take his office. And that other would be a man named Matthias. Matthias had accompanied the disciples and Jesus from the time of Jesus' baptism all the way to the time of his resurrection. He'd been an eyewitness of all of it as they all had been, and God declared Matthias to be the twelfth apostle. In the Old Testament, of course, there were tribes, descendants of the sons of Jacob, in Exodus 40 that you heard moments ago, you heard that, that, that kind of complicated, detailed description of the tabernacle as God instructed Moses to finish constructing the parts of the tabernacle. Get it set up. All the pieces are done. Get it set up so that I can establish my presence visibly with my people. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And there we're, we're told that throughout all of their journeys, these 12 tribes followed the one God. Because when something truly big comes along, people follow. And what was it exactly that they were following? They're following the presence of God as it is now expressed in the church. I mean, it's built on the foundation of the twelve, the the followers of the one sent from God the one whose names we know from the book of Revelation, actually graced the 12 foundations of the new Jerusalem. They are the pillars upon whom the people of God, the church, stands. It is as though the the shadow of God, as it were, is, is sweeping across the face of the earth in the form of the church. And it shows up in stronger ways in some places than in others and at some times than in other times. I mean, it began, as we're reading here, and as you see through the gospel accounts, it began in the Mediterranean world as Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and to preach the gospel. And they began in in Jerusalem and Samaria and Galilee and to the ends of the earth as as Jesus commissioned them to do so. And it began to spread from there eventually after some several hundred years of development in the Mediterranean region. It spread through Italy to Europe. And the shadow became clear there in in Europe. And after some centuries, the shadow began to move across the ocean to North America. And it became very clear in in this continent. And some would say that At this point in church history, that shadow in this continent is beginning to wane a bit. It's beginning beginning to fade somewhat. But the movement of the shadow has not stopped. It's gone elsewhere now. It's, it's, It's predominant in China and in Africa and in South America. So why should you follow these followers? Because they are, as expressed in the Christian church, 
the shadow of God Almighty himself. So parents, as school begins this week, you know, you're kind of shifting gears and you're, you're thinking in terms of new beginnings and we've got to reschedule this, the family calendar and here are the new activities we're going to have and, and we're kind of thinking anew of things. Do you know what is the greatest gift that you can give to your children? You know, as you, as you begin to think of, of reshifting and reshuffling the family priorities of calendar and schedule and things that you're doing or choosing not to do, do you know what is the greatest, the one single greatest gift you can possibly give to your children? What is it? Is it a safe home? Well, that's important. It's kind of a given. I guess that's something that parents need to strive for, but that's not it. Is it education, maybe? I mean, in our culture, we stress education, and it's pretty important. But that's not it. Maybe it's morals. Maybe it's a moral structure that you want to communicate to your children as they grow up so that they will grow up and do rightly, or whatever terms you might put to that. That's not it. Be careful with that one. That's not it. What is the greatest gift that you can possibly give to your children? It's this. Teach them to love the church by loving it yourself. With your own actions, with your own priorities, with your own efforts, with all the gifts that God has given you, teach your children to love the church. Because through the church, and I'm talking church with a capital C, not the little c, I mean, the little c is this congregation. The capital C is the worldwide church. You should love them both. You can't love the capital C church without loving the little church. That's how you do it. But to love the the universal worldwide church, this is the gift that you must give to your children because through the church are the means of grace that God gives to his children to cause us to grow in the gospel. And this is where we find this. I mean, listen, I would, I would love to go and see this eclipse more closely myself. In fact, I mean, my family's been kind of laughing with me and at me for some time now as we kind of try to scheme and figure out how can we possibly get far enough north on Monday to be in the, the path of the shadow of that eclipse. We even made a reservation in Salina, Kansas to go drive up there this afternoon and see if we could be in a place tomorrow morning to go on up and see it. But the clouds are going to be covering Nebraska and, you know, a lot of people are thinking like I am. They're thinking, how could I possibly go? And, and for many of them, they're reasoning like this. They're saying, look, if, if I don't try, then I'm not going to see it. So just in case the traffic isn't too bad or the clouds aren't too covering on that day, just in case, I'm going to go and maybe I'll see it. That's good enough reasoning for an eclipse. It is not good enough reasoning for the gospel. Some people actually reason that way in regard to the church and the gospel. Some people actually think to themselves this. They think, you know, I'm not so sure that this gospel is true. I don't know exactly what the church is all about. But it sounds kind of good, and it sounds important in case it is true. And so just in case it is, I'm going to to plant a flag, a part of my my life in the church. I'm going to associate with one, and I'll show up every now and then. And do a few things with it. And just in case it's true, then I'll be there when it happens. That reasoning is not sufficient for the gospel. Because there are certain indicators that your following is truly following. How? How must you follow these followers? How you follow proves that you follow. The list of names here actually implies, I think, two things. 
One of those is that you must follow them with humility. You must follow them with humility. Only one of these men listed in the list here actually became famous. You know, what, what we would call famous. And that is, of course, Peter, the big fisherman. Because he was a strong leader and he also was the prominent denier of Jesus who was restored. And Peter became somewhat famous. I mean, he's the namesake of cathedrals and basilicas around the world. He's the namesake of, of schools and even of cities. And, of course, of this little church. He became somewhat famous, right? And a few of them became marginally well-known, you might say. I mean, John and Matthew. John and Matthew, of course, wrote their own gospel accounts, which are in your Bible. And John wrote a a few little letters at the end that are pretty important later in the Scriptures. And even bigger than that, John is the one who gave us, well, the Lord gave us through John, the book of Revelation at the very end of your Bible, that exclamation point on the end of the Scriptures. So, John and Matthew became, you know, sort of marginally well-known, certainly well-known within the church, but outside the church even, people tend to know who John and Matthew are. Thomas, what about Thomas? People kind of know who Thomas is, sort of, but why? Because of his doubts. He became sort of marginally well-known because he doubted the resurrection, and that's how we know Thomas. He's, He's not famous, he's kind of infamous. But what do you know about the others? What do, you, what do you know about the other eight? Probably not much. I mean, Andrew. Who's Andrew? All the Bible tells us about Andrew is he's the brother of Peter. That's it. And then James. James is the brother of John. And he was one of the four fishermen, one of the four partners in the fishing business there on the Sea of Galilee. That's who James is. But, but James is not the James who wrote the book of James at the back of your Bible, that was someone else. That was James, the brother of Jesus. So this James didn't even get that. But what about Philip? This one's kind of funny. I mean, what do you know about Philip? Probably probably nothing, but if you think about it really hard, you might come up with something. Philip is the one who, on that day when 5,000 people were gathered by the lake to hear Jesus teach, it came to be lunchtime, everybody was kind of hungry, and Jesus turned to one of his disciples, one of his apostles, Philip, and he said, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip said, Lord, I don't know. Send them home. That's what we know about Philip. That's it. And that's that's what we know about this guy. I mean, he's not even the evangelist who we get to know in the book of Acts. There is a Philip who was one of the deacons who becomes this great evangelist and shares with uh, uh, an African man on his way back to Africa. And Philip, beca- Philip, we read of Philip a little bit later, the deacon later on in the book of Acts. That's not this Philip. This is the apostle Philip. All we know about him is he didn't know where to find lunch. Bartholomew. <laughs> you don't know anything about Bartholomew. In fact, his name is even kind of confusing to us. James, the son of Alphaeus, we're not sure about. Simon, all we know about Simon is he was a zealot. That means he had certain political leanings. We'll come back to him in a minute. And Judas, the son of James, nothing. And we just know he's not the Iscariot. And then there's Judas Iscariot. So this is what you know about these guys. Not much. I mean, they didn't become famous. Four fishermen, a tax collector, a political operative, and then six you don't know about. That's all we got. I mean, all of them are from Galilee. None of them are from Jerusalem. None of them was wise by human standards, nor 
influential nor of noble birth. They were nobodies. And so are you. So are you. And it's a great blessing if you follow these followers with humility because their gospel is what would become famous. The God who spoke creation into existence has sent the apostle to reconcile the rebels of creation to himself. His righteousness for our rebellion. His glory for our filth. And if that's your hope, then you must also follow them with grace. With grace towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we all have a lot of differences among us. We, we think of things differently. We do things differently. And we can easily cross each other wrongly. And so if you're going to follow these followers, you must do it with grace. I mean, the, the list gives us a, a couple of bookends at the beginning and at the end. Simon, who's called Peter, and Judas Iscariot. They're the, they're the bookends on the list, right? And these are two very different men. I mean, one was a risk-taking leader. The other was a dark, corner-seeking schemer. One of them qualified himself with repentance, and the other one disqualified himself with greed. The differences between these two are very obvious, but they're not the relationship. Theirs is not the relationship that requires and implies grace on our part. Judas was apostate. He left them all. But rather, inside these two bookends, there are two other opposites who do suggest to us the need, the necessity to show grace to one another. And those two are Matthew and Simon. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Both of them were Jews, but their differences were sharp. And I want to put it to you this way. Maybe kind of replay possibly the conversations that were had as these two separately came into the group. So Simon, the zealot, comes into the group. Jesus invites him in, and Simon comes in, and he sees across the room Matthew, who's already there. And Simon, recognizing Matthew, pulls Jesus aside, and he says, Hey, Jesus, that guy over there, Matthew, I don't know how well you know him yet, but is he in? Like, is he one of these guys? Sure, Simon, he is. He's one of us. Well, Jesus, he's a tax collector. Now, Jesus, I don't know if maybe in your dad's workshop as you were growing up, maybe you guys didn't talk about politics. But let me tell you something. Tax collectors are sellouts. They're sellouts. They're they're greedy cowards. They're employed by Rome the enemy, in order to tax us, to take our money and pass it along to Rome. And not only that, tax collectors raise the rates of the taxes they collect and they skim off the top to enrich themselves at our expense. Jesus, you don't understand this guy Matthew. I mean, he collaborates with the enemy. You don't want him in this group. So there's that conversation. And then there's this one. Matthew's already there. He's already been invited into the group and And Jesus comes in, he brings another one, Simon, the zealot. Matthew knows this guy because they're enemies. They're both Jews, but they're polar opposites. And so Simon comes in the room. Matthew pulls Jesus aside. He says, Jesus, hey, look, that guy you just brought in. Simon is his name. I know. I met him. I brought him in. Simon is his name. Jesus, listen, is he part of us? I just got to know. 
Yeah, he's part of us. Okay, Jesus, listen. I don't know if maybe you growing up in your dad's workshop, if you ever talked about politics, Jesus, but I got to tell you something. Simon is a zealot. And that means he's a hyper-conservative Jesus. I mean, he's an anti-government operative. He's a guy that that will oppose the Roman government at at any cost, at any time. These guys, these zealots, we call them that for a reason. They're very zealous. They become unhinged sometimes. And they even cause rebellions and people get killed. Jesus, you don't want this guy in the group. And here we are with these two. They're a part of the twelve. But, you know, the reality is the gospel would put these two in the same place because Simon, the zealot patriot, would be hated, hated by the Jews for preaching Christ over the law. And Matthew, the the pragmatic businessman, would be rejected by Rome for preaching Christ over Caesar. And now these two men would be united in the gospel of grace out of reality and necessity, both doing good to one who deserved, or so they might have thought, deserved otherwise. If you're going to follow these followers, then you must follow together with one another in grace. You must. Youth ministry is a great place to to sort of illustrate this. I'll explain. So a youth ministry is a place where, where young disciples learn to love the church where they learn to grow in grace together in humility with their brothers and sisters in Christ. A youth ministry in a church is always a hodgepodge of kids, of students, if you will, middle school, high school students, and younger. It's always kind of a a hodgepodge collection of students, even from various schools and different family backgrounds. And sometimes that can be a little bit awkward and kind of off-putting. And and students might kind of think, well, those aren't my best friends. I don't know that I really want to spend time with them. And sometimes parents will try to remedy that awkwardness by sending their students to a, another youth ministry, a, maybe a parachurch, one that's parallel along with the church, but not the church, to another youth ministry that's not connected to any church at all. And, and I recognize, in all fairness, I recognize the attraction of that because usually those sorts of ministries are structured around cohesive, homogenous school groups. And so you go to this ministry with your friends, with the people you know and you're comfortable with, you like them, and you want to be seen with them. And so it's, it's attractive. It's very attractive. It's easy. It's comfortable. But you know what? It is a horribly missed opportunity. It is a horribly missed opportunity to say, you know, you don't need to go and spend time with those people that maybe you have some differences with. Just go and be with the people that you're like. That's That's entirely opposed to the church. That's not loving the church with humility and with grace. I mean, of course, this applies to adults too, doesn't it? Because Christianity is distinct from all the world's major religions in in many ways, of course, but in one way because of its cultural breadth, the, the, the cultural breadth of its reach. Christianity reaches across all cultures. Other world religions don't do that. I mean, if you think about it, Hindu... Hinduism has, for centuries, has always been predominantly in a, a religion in the country of India, among Indian people in that culture. I mean, its ideas have spread in some different ways here and there, but generally it's, it's an Indian religion. 
And Buddhism is an Asian religion by and large. I mean, again, some of its ideas and tenets have kind of spread, as people have thought that's kind of neat and interesting. But Buddhism is an Asian religion, and Islam is a Middle Eastern religion. It always has been since it began predominantly. I mean, again, kind of parts of it have spread in different places, but generally it's a Middle Eastern religion. Christianity is not like that. Christianity, the shadow of Christianity, the shadow of God in the church has spread throughout the world regardless of culture or language or background or socioeconomic level. It always stretches across a wide cultural breadth. And therefore, as the church, even in this country, becomes more and more diverse, Christians must follow together with grace. If you're truly following these followers, then you're doing it with increasing measures of humility and grace. And there is no avoiding these things because of where they're leading you. Where will you follow them? Well, that's a very practical question, of course. And it has both geographical and theological dimensions to it. Right? I mean, these men in the list were locals. They were Galileans. All of them. They were country folk, as it were in Israel of that day and age. And these, these guys had no expectations whatsoever of cross-country moves. It just wouldn't be a part of their culture. And they surely had no even imaginations of international adventures, which they all would eventually have. They weren't thinking these things until it became clear that God was moving, that the, the shadow of the Creator was moving as the church across the face of the earth. When that became clear, everything began to change for these 12. And likewise, you don't know where God may take you. You just don't know. I mean, I think of of my own family. Over a decade ago, we lived in Georgia. And we knew, Mary and I had recognized and seen that God was calling us out of college campus ministry and on to something else, but we weren't quite sure yet what that was going to be. And we didn't know where it was going to be. We were pretty sure it wasn't going to be where we were currently living. And so we knew a geographical move was imminent, but we assumed that it was going to be on the East Coast. Maybe we wanted for it to be on the East Coast at the time. And there actually was a church on the East Coast that said, hey, come on, we want you. But the Lord made clear otherwise. And I'll spare you the long story, but, but here we are. We came here 10 years ago this summer. And even five years ago, we kind of regathered ourselves and kind of began to think, well, maybe the Lord is leading somewhere else. And it seemed to us that God was going to take us somewhere else geographically. And then all of a sudden, he turned us back and said, nope, you're back in this place. You just don't know where God is going to lead you geographically. I mean, there are plenty of folks from our little congregation here who move every year. I mean, just in the past months, we've seen folks move to Wyoming and to Tennessee and to Washington, D.C. and to Houston, Texas. People up and go when the Lord moves them, and you just don't really know. Or the geographical change might be actually more local. It might be certain changes that begin to take shape in your life and in your circumstances or with your relationships or your health or your finances that cause you to begin to to recognize decisions that you must make that you would not have made before until you saw that God was on the move and now you're going. 
Sometimes those things happen. You go when God leads. These apostles would soon be following God on the move. They'd be going to Italy and to Turkey and Syria and India and North Africa, places they never would have dreamed of going until they saw God on the move because they would soon also follow Jesus to another place theologically. Not just geographically, but theologically. They would die to themselves because he would die for them. Remember the the two bookends of the list. I mean, the hints are obvious here. The, The first bookend is Simon, whom he named Peter. And the last, the second bookend, the last name is Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. That's the same in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, as they list these names, they bookend it with these same things. Because they, they want to make clear a point. The first bookend is the rock for the life of the church. Because the other bookend is death for the redeemer of the church. Judas, who would become a traitor. I mean, the hint couldn't be any louder than that, right? Jesus chose the Iscariot purposefully. We know he did it. I mean, in John chapter 6, there's this interaction of Jesus with his disciples, and he's teaching some things that are very difficult. And some people on the periphery of the discipleship group turn and leave because they decide we just can't do this anymore. We, this is not, we can't figure this, we can't, we're not going there. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says to them, do you want to leave me too? And John, Peter, rather, of course, the spokesman responds to Jesus and says, no, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. To whom would we go? We know that you're the Holy One of God. I mean, Peter makes a great profession of faith right there. And then Jesus responds to that with this. He says to all 12 of them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. One of you is a devil. Purposefully, he set himself up so that he could die in righteousness for those who must die to themselves. And that's exactly what he would preach to them in in his very first sermon, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. His, His sermon, which is Luke's version of the Beatitudes. Jesus preached to them, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when people hate you because of me, for great is your reward in heaven. In other words, the values of this world, power and comfort and success and recognition in the eyes of this world, the values of this world are not the values of God. And if you follow these followers, where will you go? You will go to death. You will die to your dependence on the values of this world. So why? Why should you follow them? How? How must you follow them? And where? Where will you follow them? If you're going to follow Christ, you must answer those questions. And with these 12 apostles, Jesus is reconstituting the people of God. He's putting back together all 
that God has built up until this point throughout the Old Testament. He's reconstituting the people of God and building the church from 12 sons to 12 tribes to 12 apostles to the church. The shadow of God is sweeping across the face of the earth. Will you follow? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see and to be able, by your working in us, to in fact follow you. Help us, Lord, we pray, because we need your Spirit to move among us, to enable us to to die to ourselves so that we might live to you, that we might be enlivened in a new spirit to find the fruit of your spirit at work in our lives and among us. Father, we pray that you would do that for us. Even as we come to this communion table, Father, would you feed us, not just with bread and wine, but with the spirit of the living God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.